This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law, and our guest is the new dean of the Ole Miss Law School, Susan Duncan. This morning we'll talk about restorative justice. That's an approach to justice that personalizes the crime by having the victims and the offenders mediate a resolution agreement to the satisfaction of each, as well as involving the community. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz, and it's such an honor to have Dean Duncan on today. I think this is going to be a great show, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of um, issues that people have with our our justice system, and this is another approach she's going to talk about today that uh, is a great one. Well, I'm so glad she's here, too. Also, you know, prior to joining the faculty at Ole Miss, uh, Dean Duncan served as the interim dean at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law, where she began as an instructor in 1997. Welcome to our show and the state of Mississippi, Dean Susan Duncan. Thank you. It's a thrill to be here. Well, we're we're so glad it's a it's a rainy, yucky kind of day in <laughs> Jackson. I I, uh, I hope that you have sunshine in Oxford. Not exactly. Not today, but it was a beautiful weekend, so that was good. Well, fantastic. So this morning, we're talking about restorative justice. So this was a new topic to me when it was, uh, when it was brought up, and I'm, I'm sure it will be unfamiliar, and our listeners are, uh, have an inquisitive mind. So tell us a bit about this philosophy. Sure, and it is exactly that. It's, it's a philosophy or a system that really emphasizes a need to repair harm done to a victim. So it it is a little bit different than normal mediations um, because I don't think a normal mediation really focuses on repairing harm or having somebody be accountable for the harm that they committed. Uh, So that's a big difference because normally in mediations, you're just trying to resolve a dispute and you're going back and forth to try to reach a resolution. This is this is very different. You would never do a restorative justice um, circle or a proceeding if if the offender or the person who caused the harm wasn't accountable. So that's the very first step before we even talk about doing this different approach. Now, um, well, what do you mean uh, accountable? If there was any question of his culpability? That's right. If there's a question that that person did not cause the harm, was not the perpetrator, you would not do a restorative justice session. So this is only applicable after you've talked to an offender, the offender wants to take accountability for what he or she did, and that would be that first step before we'd even consider going forward. So that's why it is very different than a normal um, legal system for you know a trial or or for a mediation where you don't have to admit fault. I I, I guess 
you know, I'm not, I don't think I uh, harm people. So I'm trying to, to think of what are situations where someone, someone would take, uh, that would, would take responsibility and ownership of, of things they did wrong. What would be some so ways it would be used? Let's say, for example, this is used many times with children um, in juvenile law. So let's say that a child shoplifted or a child uh, engaged in graffiti. That child, if they wanted to um, avoid going to juvenile court could agree to participate in restorative justice. And at how it works is we would be in a circle and you'd have a trained facilitator and that trained facilitator would lead a discussion in the circle. And in the circle would be the victim and the victim supporters. So it could be friends or family of the victim. And then also the child and his supporters. So it could be his family, um, his teachers, his friends. And we, we would engage in a discussion, but the very first person who would talk would be the child. And the child would have to say what happened, why it happened. Um, and so that you would never even uh, bring the circle together if the child wasn't going to take accountability for what he or she did. So the child would need to say, yes, I sprayed the graffiti and this is why I did it. And we start into that discussion and then we would switch uh, to see what the victim says. So the victim, we'd ask the victim, how did you feel when it happened? Um, What are you worried about now? And so the child could hear how this impacted the victim. And then eventually the conference, after we had a good discussion about what exactly happened and why it happened, we would switch to how are we going to repair that harm. So it's, it's very different than a normal, uh, the normal way we deal with crimes or conflict in the legal system. Because if you think about it, normally we're concentrating on what law has been broken and how are we going to punish this person. That is a total different mindset with restorative justice. Instead of what law has been broken, we we think about what harm has occurred and then how are we going to repair that harm. And so the focus is entirely different. And what, you know, obviously most of our municipal legal systems I would say most aren't set up that way. What would be who who would be using or who who uses currently restorative justice? So I was involved in a project in Louisville, Kentucky, with the juvenile court, and how it worked there is the court um, personnel that did the initial intake and the prosecutors could decide to refer some uh, certain children with certain offenses to restorative justice. The Restorative Justice was a nonprofit group that was made up of mostly volunteers who were trained facilitators. So once we received the referral, then as a facilitator, I would call the uh, both the victim and the offender. I'd make sure that everybody understood the process, um, that the offender was in fact going to take accountability, uh, made sure the victim was okay doing the circle, that that wouldn't be more harm. Um, And then I would convene the circle, and we would have a uh, conversation, like I said, where we would talk about what happened, why it happened, how the people feel about what happened. 
Um, and then we would switch to, well, what are we going to do now so that child can repair the harm? And um, it has deep, deep historical origins, restorative justice. So if you think about peace circles with the Native Americans or Aboriginal people in New Zealand and uh, Australia, Canada, all these groups, you know, many, many years ago, that is the way they dealt with conflict. Every person was too important in their tribes to get rid of anybody. So they couldn't just ostracize somebody and put them away. They needed everybody in their community to be a part of it. And so this is the way that elders would bring together a group to talk to the person who had um, done the harm to try to figure out how are we going to bring you back into our circle and repair the harm. Um, it, it reminds me of just kind of old fashioned mom justice. I mean, when, when you got in trouble as a child, you know, what did your mom or dad do? Usually they said, okay, if you broke the neighbor's window with a baseball, you had to go over, you had to tell the neighbor you did it, you had to apologize. And then how are you going to fix it? You know, you had to go back and, and, um, rake some leaves or do something to earn some money. And then you had to repair that window for your neighbor. Or if you, you know, I remember a brother taking something out of a drugstore once, and my dad marched him back in, and he had to apologize, and they had to pay for the candy bar. And so it, it really, I think a lot of people, it will resonate if you just think of it like that. It's how, how did your family deal with you when you did something wrong? They just didn't send you away and not love you anymore. I mean, they worked with you, but you had to accept that you did something wrong and want to make it right. And, Dean, it seems like, you know, what I find compelling about this is that the victim actually then gets compensation in a way that, that, that it's actually fixed, whereas in a typical criminal situation, the person's sent away for the crime, and then the victim still has to deal with whatever harm they caused. And, and it is so true. Most of the times with the crime, you know, the state is bringing the action, so the victim is totally out of the situation. Um, and that's not very helpful for most victims. A lot of research has been done about what victims want. And many times victims aren't as interested in the punishment as they are in having someone explain, why did you pick me to rob? What was happening in your mind that you did that? Um, and, and victims often want just somebody to say they're sorry and to have some closure. And so by allowing them to tell the offender how much it impacted them, and they kind of reach closure, get that off their chest, get some answers where they don't get that normally. Um, and then the offender, especially if it's a child, can develop some empathy and, and understand much more the damage they cause than just getting service hours or being put in a juvenile detention center. Um, if they have to look across and hear a victim and that the victim's scared at night or has trauma after the situation, Many times, I don't think a, an offender realizes that, and so that's a positive. Um, and also, the victim might hear what's going on in the offender's life and realize that we need to get this offender some services. Some, uh, you know, there's, there's many things that go on sometimes with why a child or an adult would commit a crime, and often we can identify that in a circle more than we do in a court. 
Well, this is certainly an intriguing topic that i am uh, got lots of questions about, and I'm sure our listeners do. So when we come back from the break, uh, give us a call if you have any comments about this philosophy of restorative justice. Our uh, phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. You can also send us an email, and when we go to break, I'll be checking our email account, legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you have missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms it's also available on the mpb media app as is all our local shows i'm liz gill here with professor richard gershon from the university of mississippi school of law our guest today is dean susan duncan from the university of mississippi school of law and today we're talking about restorative justice um dean duncan one thing that uh, struck me from what you were saying was the with the origins how it seems to be a a concept that evolved separate, you know, on separate continents with separate people. So it would seem an intuitive method of mm, justice. Exactly, because you can see it in almost every culture. And um, now, now, you know, not every culture always did this. There's mixed, right? Because you can look at um, some very retributive actions with American Indians as well. So it's not that they all did this all the time, but but it, it does have very deep origins in the Aboriginal people. Also a lot of origins in religious traditions, if you think about it. Um, and, and many times the churches are very uh, involved in restorative justice because it is about redemption and and making up for what you've done wrong. And so that, for many religions, um, has a deep theme, I think. Well, with this, uh, we have really struck a chord with our listeners. We have some calls that we are going to get to today. First, we have from Jackson. Frank has a comment. Go ahead, Frank. Welcome to In Legal Terms. Yeah, this is uh, very unusual and very interesting, uh, but it kind of fits into something I learned with youth ministry that uh, we had a bunch of kids that were fighting from uh, almost pre-K up to high school, and they'd always get into these altercations. So the youth ministers got together and came up with this idea of a a five-part apology where you say the person's name, acknowledging them as a valued person, tell them what you did, say uh, you're sorry you did it, you won't do it again. But the most powerful part of the whole process was when the person who was wronged forgave 
and express forgiveness to the person who had done them wrong. And unconditionally, none of this, you know, I forgive you, but I'll never forget, just I forgive you. And what we have found is that it elevates the uh, uh, the, the self-worth of the person who know, knew they did wrong and elevates them to a point where guilt can kind of be assuaged, and they begin to take responsibility for what they did. So I think the most important part of this whole process is the victim expressing forgiveness to the, the perpetrator or whatever you call in that case. And that's just my personal experience. And I really I, I, I would ag- go. I would agree totally. And it's being used in many school districts across the country now. And when you think about bullying, let's say, if those children that are the bullies just are suspended or they get punished, that just makes it way worse because all their friends get angry, the bully's angry, and then they take it out more on the victim, and the victim remains very scared. But if you can have a trained facilitator get them all in the room, like you said, and everybody gets to express and the bully gets to hear the impact it's having on the victim, and then the victim, if the bully is accountable, and and the facilitator wouldn't even have it if the bully won't be, um, it can do so much healing for for both people, like you said. It's just transformative when you witness it. I, I know it's hard to think about in the abstract, but when you've been part of these circles, it really is transformative for for some people. Um, and I think it's worth trying, even though it won't be the silver bullet for all situations, of course, but it, it definitely is worth trying. Well, we thank Frank for... Uh making that comment and uh, giving his uh, actual uh, in his actual experience with this type of philosophy. Uh, next, we're going to go on to Boonville. And Norma has a comment about the mediator. Go ahead, Norma. Thanks for calling in. Well, I'd be interested in being a facilitator or a mediator. Is there such a program in the state of Mississippi? If not, are there plans afoot to have one? And how would a person like me get in touch with an appropriate uh, contact person if you're interested in the facilitation? Well, great question. And um, I am so new to Mississippi. <laughs> I'm not sure if there is or not. But this is a real passion of mine. So I definitely want to um, work with people in Mississippi if, if I find out they're already doing it or bring it to Mississippi. And in fact, um, one of the justices of the Supreme Court has asked me to meet with her to talk about it for juvenile court. So I think um, you will start to to hear more about it, and, and we can give an update maybe on this show um, once I find out more about where it's being used in Mississippi. But it, it, a lot of times it's just folks like you that get together um, with the with the justice system officials, and we had a task force in Louisville, Kentucky that – that involved the public defenders, the prosecutors, church people, just volunteers. And uh, we had trainings and and were able to get community members involved because a big part of restorative justice is not just that the offender and the victim are there, like a traditional mediation, but you have these supporters who are part of the community um, and the facilitators usually come from the community because if you think back about the peace circles, it was the tribal leader who brought everybody together. So you need people in the communities to run this, not from outside a community. And uh, I, I want to add that uh, the William Winter Institute here 
offers a course in restorative justice. And so you're going to have some uh, partners here, Dean, to to, uh, to spread this word, which is great. That being the mediator, the facilitator, the umpire, the referee, whatever you would want to call it, uh, I'm sure as as we know in sports, being the umpire is a thankless job, but uh, the system just falls apart if they aren't there to to uh, be there for the benefit for everyone. Right. And, and really, the facilitator's main work is before the conference. So you do a lot of prep work with each person that's going to be in the circle so they know what's going to happen. But you really are the only one that doesn't have a right to be in the circle, right, because you're not part of the conflict. So you try to be just in the back seat and let them just talk. And sometimes it is very emotional in those circles. I mean, you have ground rules, so nobody's going to do anything that's really out of line, and you have to bring it back if they do. But but there's raw emotion in these circles, and you have to let that happen um, so people can heal. Well, we have a couple more calls we're going to get to. Uh, We're talking about restorative justice, uh, a philosophy of mediation between uh, the victim, the accused or the 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 person who who takes responsibility for the wrong and the community. If you have a comment about that, you can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You could also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Next, we're going to go on to Wesson. Susan has a comment about restorative justice. Susan, thanks for calling in today to In Legal Terms. Thank you for this program. I think this is a really important and positive innovation because it's scriptural. I know um, um, Dean Duncan mentioned that um, many religions uh, use these principles Specifically, Exodus 22, the first four verses, describe using uh, this kind of remediation for theft. And, and, and then there are several instances, and, and people would have to pay back double or sometimes five times what they had stolen. And if they could not do that, then they could be sold as a slave, and that money would go to restore. But um, I just believe that the churches. Um, could uh, could buy into this, and we could see some wonderful changes because ancient Israel actually did not have a prison system. And so by expanding this to, say, drug crimes and theft, um, you know, it could, it could really revolutionize um, how we deal with crime. Thanks so much for your comment, Susan. Yeah, I I agree, Susan, totally. And, you know, I've seen it where some children have participated in a circle and I've seen um, an offender say, or a a victim say, if you will just repair that harm, I'm going to save the money and I'll let, I'm going to give it to you when you go to college because he was so um, moved by, by the experience. Um, Another a uh, great story, a, a child threw a rock through a, a window, a living room window, and the, the woman agreed to participate, and she told the child that her granddaughter usually slept right where that rock went through, and if the granddaughter had been there, it probably would have killed her. And she saved the rock and polished it and gave it to the child and said, I hope you, when you think about doing something, you look at this rock and you just remember about what happened. And very powerful things that can happen um, that 
do so much more for somebody's development than just putting them in juvenile detention center or making them do some service work where they never have to face the person that they harmed. Well, this topic sure is expanding my mind. Uh, Next, we're going to move on to uh, Meridian. Rod has called in. Rod, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. What's your comment? Uh, Yes, thank you for taking my call. Hello? Go ahead, Rod. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Yes, I think this is a a great program. Uh, It sounds like it may be a pilot program in Mississippi or something that they're trying to introduce. Uh, I do practice law in Mississippi, and I think what I, the benefit that I see in it, I know that was a spiritual aspect mentioned, is that perhaps not to discount the victim, but the perpetrator in terms of helping them to, I don't know if you say repent or to bring whatever issue. Sometimes I think the juveniles, they have issues maybe at home or in their, their personal life that's causing them to behave that way. And I think uh, by just throwing them into a juvenile detention center, I think you create career criminals. But perhaps maybe by going through this program, you can maybe get to the root of the problem and prevent uh, that type of future behavior. Yes, and facilitators usually have a list of community resources. So once you see, is there a substance abuse problem? Is there something going on at the home? We're able to get these children to services much more than in the traditional system where nobody's spending very much time with them. You know, they're before a judge and gone in just a few minutes. They don't know what happened. Their family doesn't know what happened. In this system, um, you you are getting to the root cause sometimes of the problem. So I agree totally that it is a better, especially for children, um, because there usually is something behind the criminal behavior. Thanks for calling in, Ron. Uh, We're going to need to take another break. And when we come back, we're talking about restorative justice, a philosophy that's a little different from our current legal system, but it's a mediated form that could be used uh, instead of or in different situations. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, and we're joined by our guest, Ole Miss School of Law Dean Susan Duncan. And this morning, we're talking about restorative justice. Well, Professor Gershon, do you want to jump in? You know, Liz, this is just a great topic, and I'm really happy the the listeners have responded so well to it because it's another approach 
And, you know, and we, we have uh, warehoused people for a long time. Um, and if we can stop that, uh, that process of, of always putting someone in jail rather than trying to help them be part of our community, I think we'd all be better off. Well, uh, certainly, uh, if we find that something doesn't work, then something else needs to be tried. And uh, from the, the, the state of the, the, the prisons and the youth detention facilities, uh, you know, this sounds like something that a lot of uh, local communities, especially f- specifically for youth, might be something uh, to look into. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think that's that's where you want to. Uh, really approach this is that when they, when people are young, because otherwise what happens is they go into uh, the prison system, detention system, and they learn worse habits as opposed to maybe having this problem solved early on. You know, and, and Liz, there's a lot of theory behind restorative justice, too. It's not just something that somebody made up. Um, so when you think about how to regulate behavior, if you thought of a square, a, a matrix, and you had four little um, tables in your square. I mean, if you're low on support and you're low with control, then you're just neglectful. You're not doing anything for a child. If you're really high on the control and low on supporting a child, then that's punitive. That's when you just punish. Um, and if you're, if you're low on control and you're high on nurturing um, and support, that's just permissive. A child can do anything. But what really seems to regulate behavior the best is when you're high on control, so you're making the child accountable, but you're also high on support. You're showing the child a way to get back in the fold and to to, um, redeem him or herself. So that's the restorative place. And most people respond better with support, but they need boundaries too, right? So that's why I like it so much because I think it's a great way to parent or – um, to deal with any time you have to regulate behavior. If you can, you, you have to have control, but you need to, that person to feel supported. Um, and that seems to work really well. And, you know, with the regular justice system, we do stigmatizing shame, right? We make you stand alone in front of a judge. We're going to put you in a jail cell, take you away from your support network. It's not that there's not shame involved with restorative justice because there is shame when you have to admit in front of all your friends, even more so in front of your friends and family, the shame occurs, but that's reintegrative shame because then we show them a way to make amends. It's not just stigmatizing shame, which if you're told over and over, you're bad, you did something bad, you're going to, to live out that way. Um, and if you're told, no, you did something that's bad, but you can make amends, that's much better for your psyche. Well, Dean Duncan, before we get to Gerald and Jack, who have called in, um, you had mentioned uh, participating when you were in Kentucky on having a restorative justice sessions for uh, youth courts for when everyone agreed to it. Uh, So is there... How effective was it? Do you have any kind of comparisons for offenders who went through the restorative justice process versus those uh, who didn't? Or So they're in Kentucky uh, right now doing a, a, a study on that to see exactly how effective it is. And they just have the 
the groups that they needed. So we had to take so many cases before we would have enough data to look at it. But nationally, there's been a lot of uh, work done on the effectiveness. And it scores very high in victim satisfaction. So like we said earlier, the victims are totally out of the normal system, and they do not feel like their needs have been met. So when you survey people after going through restorative justice, most victims uh, rank it very high. It also, uh, offender satisfaction, um, you can imagine if they don't have to go to uh, jail or the detention center, uh, most offenders have a positive experience. And we're even seeing that um, restoration compliance figures are higher if they've gone through this, so the restitution gets paid quicker and in full more when they've sat across from somebody, and less recidivism. So um, we see positive numbers on that. You know, some studies are, are don't have as much of a positive correlation, and, and they're as good, if not a little better, than the normal system. Um, I know in New Zealand they have decided to do restorative justice for every single youth crime except for murder. They closed eight of the nine juvenile detention centers. Closed them. So that's how effective it is there. So um, I, I think we do have positive evidence that it works, um, it, it, it's not going to work for everybody, though. I mean, you're still going to have a child that, that does something bad again. Um, but if you could get some of those children on the right path, to me, that's worth investing in it. Fantastic. And we're so glad that our, our listeners are inquisitive about this topic of restorative justice. So we'll go to I-10. We hope Gerald is being safe driving through Mississippi. Gerald, welcome to In Legal Terms. Hey, how are we doing today? We're great. We're so glad uh, you've called to comment about our topic. Certainly, yeah. So, yeah, I went to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, actually, traveling right now. But this is a topic that, as uh, also a, a member of the community, the Human Relations Commission in my community, we talk a lot about, you know, different practices. And restorative justice has come up on a number of occasions. I've spoken to um, the state's attorney in our county, and it seems that, you know, obviously, you know, it's a great program. Uh, but I think a lot of the problem and issue with actually implementing it comes with a lack of resources. Because, I mean, something like this is a, is a very large endeavor that, that takes an entire community. In fact, that's the point. Um, but there's a certain point where, you know, you're – you, you kind of run shy on resources, and it really puts a pretty uh, – makes it tough to implement, really. So I don't know if there's any suggestions on how, you know, to try and make this, you know, how, how to make it work, <laughs> you know. Right. I mean, it's a great idea. I mean, it works, but, boy, it's just tough to get the funding necessary to pay somebody to do this, which you really have to do be, in, unless you've just got a bunch of people that are willing to, you know, donate their time. You know, you can get a few, but people get burnt out, <laughs> you know? You're right, and that is a big problem with it. Um, so we were able to get some grants that helped pay the executive director. The, all the facilitators are volunteers, and like you said, it, it is, it's, a, it's a big commitment to be one of these facilitators. So we had even hoped that eventually, like court mediators, we could pay those facilitators a little bit. Um, the the way we were trying to to deal with it is we did a um, 
a chart to show state legislators how expensive it is to have children out of school in suspensions or to have children in the juvenile detention centers. And so we um, ran those figures to show what it would cost for them and then what it would cost to do a restorative justice uh, proceeding. And the difference is just amazing. So if you could start to shut down some of these juvenile detention centers and then allocate those resources to the restorative justice programs, you wouldn't need any more money. It would just it would save the state money, um, and that could be where the resources come from. You know, it, it is a hard sell at first because people are suspicious of this. They think it's soft on crime. You're not, um, and I and I would tell anybody to go to a circle and tell me it's soft. It is not soft. It is hard to be in those circles, and I think the um, offenders get. Uh, more nervous and it, it's harder on them than just what it just going um, to do their service work or going into juvenile detention center but we are going to have to to eventually get I think governmental support um, we, we were pretty lucky with some philanthropy too so people who we had a great board and and they understood why this was so important so people were donating but um, but to make it really stick I agree we're going to need some governmental resources probably redirected and and we just have to show people with pilot programs that it works and get the uh, data looked at with these great studies and then i think legislatures would respond if they could see it that we have um, actual data that shows it's effective thank you gerald so much for making your comment uh now we have from silver city jack has called in jack thanks for calling in to in legal terms um i'm not a lawyer and i haven't been able to listen to the whole program but um how would your program affect or would it affect uh juveniles being tried as adults uh depending on the crime i'm you know, I'm not a judge or or a lawyer. Uh, would it have? Would it say keep a juvenile from being tried as a an adult? Uh, are there exceptions? So every um, country does it differently. Every state does it differently. Our pilot program in Kentucky had some pretty low-level offenses, so um, we would not have used it in that situation, at least in the present, because. Um, if they were tried as adult, it would be a pretty serious crime. When I was leaving Kentucky, though, they were doing a pilot program with adults. So they were going to start with some 18 to 22-year-olds. So many countries use it for anything. Um, so I think it would just be whether you could get the prosecutor on board. I mean, we had a great county attorney who was willing to try this because you have to have buy-in from your prosecutors to be able to do this. Um, so it's just talking to the key players in the justice system, getting them to try it. We thought if we tried it with lower-level offenses first and could show that it was working, they'd be more likely to expand it, which, in fact, they have done now with trying with these young adults. Um, so it's it really is the will of your governmental officials about how many places it will work. It also works, too. Uh, we had talked about during the break uh, – that it can work even if you are in jail. So let's say that we never say it's appropriate for murder, that we always think somebody needs to do some time for that. Many times there are circles in the jail 
with the victim's family that brings healing to both parties. So it's not that they're not going to not serve time, but how are we going to help people move on from this horrible tragedy? So there are many instances where that even happens or they have circles before somebody's coming out of jail to figure out how to reintroduce, reintroduce them into their um, their communities. So there, there can be many different ways that you use a circle. All right. Thank you so much, Jack, for that question. And now it's time for us to take our last break of the show. Uh, you're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. We'll be able to take just a couple more calls when we come back from the break. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Our topic today is restorative justice. That's what we're taking our calls on. But uh, if we don't get to your call, you can send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. This is, I think this has been one of our our better programs. This is very interesting with uh, new concepts that have really expanded my mind. If you've missed any of this program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as is all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is uh, the new dean of the law school at uh, the University of Mississippi, uh, Dean Susan Duncan. Um, one one question. Okay, now now I've bought in. Um, I I uh, from knowing nothing to to learning about this. This this seems like a, a fabulous idea. We've talked about using this in um, in youth courts, and you talked about how Kentucky, where you were previously, has started to expand this to uh, the young adults. Where else could this be? Could could a company use this in in um, in their own uh, with their own employees? Uh, could you have a restorative justice with a conglomerate or, uh, uh, you know, with uh, someone that you d- dealt with business-wise, uh, how far can this go? It can. It is applicable to any setting almost. So I am actually did an article on workplace bullying. So I talked about how workplaces can deal with if they have uh, employees who are bullies and they could bring them together and have a conference like I said earlier, the school systems are really adopting this because they realize it is not a solution just to expel or suspend students. And so it has a lot of applicability to to schools. 
really anywhere in your families. I mean, <laughs> instead of just yelling at a child, if you ask the child, you know, why did you do it? And um, what were you thinking? And then you can tell the child, well, you know, because you didn't get the good grades, now you can't play in the football game, and now you've let down the team, you've let down your coach, This and, and kind of explain to the child it works so much better than just punishing the child and not having the conversation. Um, so I think it can apply to almost anything in life. Where are cases where it wouldn't work? You'd mentioned uh, where you were before that they didn't use it for uh, murder charges. Right. Some some people say that it's best used for the most serious crimes. So that's what some researchers say. Some um, differ with that. I think sexual assault, domestic violence, you'd have to have a very skilled facilitator. I mean, they they do have some of those, and especially in Canada. But the you could really re-victimize a victim if you're um, looking across at somebody who's physically abused you, let's say, as, as your husband. Um, so I, I, I think it can be done, but I would want a lot of training. I would not feel comfortable doing one of those with the, my training so far. So I think things like that that, that have the potential um, to re-victimize, I would want to be very careful about those kind of settings. And, and I think sexually, sexual assault could, could be very, very hard unless you knew what you were doing. When you were mentioning setting up, uh, what did you call it? The, the, the circle, the, uh, yes. for it with the, the, uh, the victim and then the self-confessed perpetrator, uh, and the, is the mediator, are they the community so a lot of times the facilitator is part of that community. So we used to do it where we would try to get somebody from the neighborhood to be the co-facilitator with the trained facilitator. Because oftentimes you respond when your grandmother acts disappointed in you or your next-door neighbor is acting disappointed in you. I mean, that's powerful to have people in your own community, not just somebody coming in from the outside who you don't know trying to um, – lead this conversation. So I always think it works best if you can get volunteers from the community to be the facilitator or even be part of the circle, you know, where they can say, when you put graffiti on this building, this is what it does to our neighborhood. And that's powerful for a child to hear. Um, So um, that's how the community can be involved. And uh, give us, uh, as we're finishing up, give us some specific stories uh, about the impact of restorative justice. So there was one I remember where some um, kids had done some graffiti on a synagogue. And so we asked the rabbi if he would agree to do this. And he didn't want to do it at first. He had no interest. And then he said, okay, I'll do it. But he brought some Holocaust survivors into the circle. And so those children got to hear how scared these people were when they saw this graffiti um, that would re- that reminded them of the Holocaust. So powerful for these children to realize what a swastika meant by hearing from survivors. Um, we had another one that was a grandmother, and they stole her purse at Christmas time, all her money for the Christmas presents. But more importantly, it had pictures of children she had lost in a in the war and just very sentimental things. 
And so she was able to tell these young people what that, you know, what had happened to her when the purse was stolen. Um, and then at the end, she told them that she was their new grandmother, that she had new grandchildren to worry about with these children. And I think these children really wanted to make amends and, and felt very bad that they had done this to this woman, you know, and had, had no idea how impactful it was just to take her purse. Well, so. just those two stories are very powerful. We're going to take one more call we have from Jasper County. Carmen has called in. Uh, we're running short on time, but welcome Got to it. In Legal Terms. All right. Thank you so much. And this is an excellent program, and I appreciate it so much. Um, number one, I wanted to comment on how young the hard criminals are becoming. I mean, early teens. It is just absolutely amazing. And something that I am um, inundated with every day is trespassers on my property that are up to very questionable, you know, behaviors. And when are our churches going to take a role and responsibility in reaching out to you know, make our communities healthier and better by their influence. And another thing I wanted to tell the chancellor, since she's new to Mississippi, is the Mississippi State Extension Service has educators that deal with this type of behavior in the family consumer science aspect of the Extension Service. And they are also located in all counties in Mississippi, all 82 counties, as you write your grant, as you develop your um, coalition groups and all. But now this is very important to me. I see it every day, and the younger that the children are. And recently a gentleman that has worked with my family all his life, his son was arrested for child abuse. And oh, Carmen, I'm sorry we're, we're uh, uh, running out of time. We thank you so much uh, for your comments. Uh, last couple of words, uh, Dean Duncan. Well, I just want to thank the state of Mississippi for giving me such a warm welcome. You all are the nicest people in the world. I keep telling my parents back at home, I've just absolutely loved being part of the state, and I really hope we can get restorative justice vibrant in your community. Oh, thank you so much, and uh, thank you, uh, Professor Gershon, for being with us today, as always. My pleasure, Liz. Well, and that'll wrap us up for today for In Legal Terms. If you missed any of today's excellent show or any of our previous excellent shows, visit mpbonline.org slash in legal terms, or you can download the MPB media app and listen on your smart device on demand. Our call screener today was our intern, Jared, and uh, Java Chapman has been our engineer. I'm Liz Gill, and for Professor Richard Gershon and Dean Susan Duncan, thanks for listening to our show. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedies show, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. Join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.